Amen. You can open up your Bible. Uh, let's just go to Luke 16 to start. We're going to bounce around a little bit today. Uh, and over the next few weeks, we're going to be bouncing through this topic, this big topic of heaven. You know, there are questions that seem to reverberate through generations, questions that seem to continue to echo no matter what the culture, the time, the place, the dominant religion. And the question that we explore today has been asked by philosophers and children. It's been asked by musicians and authors, by the rich and the poor, the young and the old. Everyone, everywhere, and every time has found themselves asking this question. What happens when we die? What happens when we die? Now, some will say, I don't know, don't care. But even the most skeptical, in a moment of transparent honesty, have to be admitting some level of curiosity about this question. So we thought, let's take six weeks and let's find out what the Bible has to say on the topic of death, heaven, and hell by beginning with this question, what happens when we die? Now over these next six weeks, we're going to ask other questions like, what is heaven and why is it better? What is hell and who goes there? How do we get to heaven and who ends up there? Why do we want to go to heaven at all? What's actually happening in heaven? So we're going to explore these through our sermon series. We've the elders have been working on a paper in coordination with our staff and an external scholar on this subject that we hope will be beneficial to you as well. And you might go, okay, I understand that it's an evergreen question, but shouldn't the realities of this present moment crowd out reflection on the life to come? Why all this talk about heaven when there seems to be so much urgency just about tomorrow? C.S. Lewis, he has this incredible phrase here about the value of meditating on heaven. He says this, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. And it's true. It's true. And do you know why it's true? It's because when we begin to consider the world to come, when we begin to consider what God has for us, for his creation forever, it changes how we view the in-between moments between now and then. Every today and tomorrow is measured in light of the forever that is to come. And we really need a resurrection-empowered vision for the world to come, because if we do not have that, then we cannot stand against the despair, the sorrow, the evil, and the forces of death that raid in this present world. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And then afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. We're going to be here and we're going to be in Luke 16. So if you're in Luke 16, the words for 1 Corinthians 15 will be on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. 
But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, bless the reading of your word. Bless the preaching of your word. We know that it never returns void. I ask that it would produce spiritual fruit. I pray that it would drive deep into our hearts a hunger and a hope for heaven. Not just the heaven of our imagination, not just the heaven of the dreams of pop culture, but the incredible depth of heaven that you have promised us in your word. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I want us to look at three things today as we explore the question, what happens when we die? And if you're taking notes, if you're a note taker, write these down. The first is death. Death. The second is life after death. Life after death. And the third is life after, life after death. Life after, life after death. Now, I want to just prepare you. When we jump into these topical sermon series, the first sermon is always the hardest. We're going to have to put on our adult pants. We're going to have to really buckle up because what we have for us today is a little bit of a technical sermon. And I just want to be honest with you at the, the, the front of that. Um, we're going to have to dive deep a little bit here, and I'm going to need you to follow along with me. You're going to have questions. You're going to be like, well, what about all these curiosities and questions I have about heaven? Well, we're going to get to those in the weeks ahead. You probably leave today with a lot of the things you want most out of a sermon series on heaven not answered. And I, I'm just going to go ahead and prepare you for that disappointment. Um, but I will tell you if, you, if you, if we can listen closely today, we'll lay a very strong foundation so that when we get to some of the funnest parts and coolest parts about thinking about the life to come in heaven, they'll have more depth to them because the engine will be stronger behind them, all right? So let's jump in. Death. Death, because if we're going to ask the question, what happens when we die, it presupposes that we know why death happens at all, right? What happens when we die raises the question, well, why is there death? Why is death here? Why is there any death at all? Well, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, then you know going all the way back to the beginning of the beginning in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, his image bearers, to cultivate and subdue creation. You see, the point of the Garden of Eden was to stretch Eden over the whole of the world. Eden was a place. It was spatially located. It was between the Tigris and the Euphrates. And Adam and Eve were placed in that garden to take the peace and the order and the goodness of Eden and to expand it over the whole of the world, right? We've summarized the story of Scripture at Mosaic as God is determined to have his people delight in living their whole lives in his presence to reflect his purposes in his place. This is exactly what God did putting Adam and Eve in the garden. He wanted his people to live in his presence and to reflect his purposes over his place, to stretch Eden over the whole of the world. Did they do that faithfully? Really? Did they do that faithfully? Okay, there we go. Let's stick with me here. Ooh, this does not bode well for where we're going. I gotta be honest with you. That was a softball. That was an easy one. No, they did not obey faithfully. And God told them what would be the consequences of their disobedience? Death. Death would be the consequence of disobedience. Not just physical death, though that would come, but more importantly, spiritual death. Because death isn't only what happens to our bodies. Because we're not only bodies. 
God created us as unities of body and soul. So the death that God has in mind when he tells them, if you disobey, you will surely die, isn't only physical death. More foundationally, it's spiritually death. It's separation from God. This is one of the consequences of humanity's sin. In Genesis 2.16, God promises death will come if they sin. In Genesis 3.19, God tells them one of the consequences of their rebellion against God is that they will now die. They now are mortal. They will die. Now, the assumption here is that had they not sinned, then they would have lived forever, right? But yet, they sin and, and they don't. They experience death. You see, death is a disruption. Death is a disruption. God didn't create his good world with death. And why am I emphasizing this? Well, because, and I can hear it in religious circles quite often, but it's certainly out there in the pop culture's imagination, there are times when in our culture or in our world or in our community, death is referred to as a friend. Death is referred to as a welcomed door to the world beyond. But the Bible uniformly refers to death as an intrusion. The Bible uniformly refers to death as an enemy. Barry Jones, a friend and pastor of a local church here in the Metroplex, he has said this. I have it on the screen for you. Don't call a friend what God has called an enemy. Don't call a friend what God has called an enemy. And death, as you heard in 1 Corinthians 15, is the last enemy to be defeated. Death is an enemy. It's not supposed to be here. It's an intrusion. And we live in a place where we are often sheltered from the realities of death. But large portions of the world are not. And it is a modern illusion for us to keep death far away from our field of vision. Death is an enemy, and the more that you are around the pain of death, the grief of death, the tragedy of death, the more any illusion of death being a welcome friend or a nice comfy door to transition to the life beyond is shattered. Death is an enemy. It is an intrusion. It is the universal normative consequence for sin. It is the universal, meaning death impacts everyone. It is the consequence for sin for all who live. Death is a reality. And in light of the coming of Christ, apart from that, all of us in this room will experience death. Everyone. Now, there is a day coming when death is removed for good forever. But until that day, death is the universal normative consequence of sin, meaning it is coming for everyone. And we live in a culture that would love to help perpetuate the idea for us that we can live forever. And I don't just mean live forever in the way that Scripture's going to talk about us as creatures who live forever. I mean that we can never experience death. We can prolong our life to the point where we would never die. And there are all sorts of creative solutions that are sold for you on this. So much of the current health and wellness industry is predicated on you believing the lie that you can avoid the reality of death. And yet it is a reality. We experience death. Now, some of you don't need any convincing of this because you have seen death up and close. You've seen the realities of death. You have felt the knock of death in the course of your life, and you know it's an enemy. You don't need to be convinced that it's an enemy. You know. You know it's tragic. 
You know it's not a welcomed respite. It's not a welcomed rest. It's not a smooth transition into the world beyond. You know that death is an intrusion. You know it's an enemy. You know that you want God to do something about it. And the good news is that God has and that God will. Even from the beginning, we start to see that while death is the universal consequence of sin, death is not the end. Death is not the end. We are created as forever creatures. You and I will live forever. You and I will live forever. We may experience a death this side of the coming of Christ, but that death will not be the end. We are forever creatures. We will live on and on and on. Think about it like this. There is never going to be a time in the forever future where you do not exist. You live forever. Now, you had a definite starting point. That is a fundamental way in which you are different from God. Eternal is forever back and forever forward. You are not eternal because you had a starting point. You had an origin. You had a first breath. You had a first moment. God, he never did. He's eternal. He's forever past. There was never a time in which God was not, but there was a time in which you were not, in which you did not exist. But from the moment you came into existence, there will never be a time in which you do not live. Now, the manner of your living will be different. It will be different now from present heaven, and it will be different now from future heaven. Let's dig into more of that. What happens when we die? Well, Jewish thought in the Old Testament is admittedly a little bit murky. I'm going to be honest with you. In the Old Testament, the view of what happens after we die, it's gray. It's cloudy. You hear phrases like when someone dies, they are being gathered to their forefathers. You'll hear the phrase, they have entered Sheol. They have entered the realm of the dead. In Jewish thought in the Old Testament, it appears that there was a great kind of uh, unity around this idea. When God's righteous ones die, they go to a place of blessing. When the unrighteous die, they go to a place of judgment. But the outline of it is murky. Now, this is not uncommon in Scripture. The Bible progressively reveals God's full story and God's world which means there are some things that we see less clear in the Old Testament and more clear in the New Testament. That's not uncommon. It happens over the whole of the story of Scripture. This is one unified story. We should expect to know more at the end than we did at the beginning. God is good in that way. You typically know more about what the novel was all about at the end than you do at the beginning. It's how books work. So we shouldn't be troubled that we know more about heaven, hell, death, and the life to come at the end, or three quarters of the way through, because that is how God has chosen to reveal himself. And that's also one of just the fundamental ways we learn as we consider and reflect and read over time. But in Jewish thought, there was a realm of the dead. And I think we get a picture of this in Luke 16. So if you want to open up your Bible to Luke 16, if you're not already there, the words will be on the screen behind me. Because in this short story here that Jesus tells, we get a picture of what the kind of common fundamental way of thinking about life after death was in Jesus' day. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, let me read it for us. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. A foodie. <laughs> um, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this story is very textured. There's a lot that's going on here. But one of the things is that if death is a reality, I want you to see this story as a picture of the fundamental way that the Bible talks about life after death. Life after death. I told you we're talking about death, life after death, and life after life after death. And this is a picture of what the Bible has to say about life after death. Now, I want to state something clearly here. Jesus' fundamental point in this story is not, this is what happens when you die. The fundamental point of this story is that if you claim that you are faithful to Yahweh, if you're faithful to God, and yet you reject the most vulnerable in their great need, then you should really consider the substance of your allegiance. That's the fundamental point here. But it is important to note that Jesus invokes this story with no qualifications. And nobody quibbles with him about the details. And I don't know if you know about the quibblers that Jesus dealt with. But if they could tag Jesus with a small discrepancy or a quibble, they did. And the fact that Jesus gives it with no qualifications and nobody responds and says, well, <laughs> excuse me, Jesus, but, you know, in the second Masoretic text, uh, uh, you know, it says this about the life to come. Nobody does that. Nobody tries to trap Jesus here. And I think that's an indication that this was the operative way of viewing life after death, both for Jews and for those who were followers of Christ at this time. So what do we learn from this story? Well, we learn a few things. There is life after death. Scripture is clear. There is life after death. When you die, you go somewhere. You go somewhere. There is life after death. That life is conscious. That life is conscious. You're aware of it, okay? It's not a one-for-one one how you're living now, but that life is conscious. Abraham, uh, Abraham's side, you have the rich, the, uh, Lazarus who's at Abraham's side, the rich man, there's conversation, there's reflection, there's remembrance here. There's a lot of things that are happening. This is conscious life. It's not like, a, it's not like you're asleep. This is not like the, the non-existence you experience before being born. You don't remember not being alive. You don't remember not being born, right? That, that's not memory you have. 
you will know where you are at. You, you will be conscious when you die. You will experience life after death, and that life will be conscious. You'll be able to talk, remember, think things. You'll know what the course of life was. There is a place where the righteous go. Is another thing that this shows us. Lazarus goes to the place where the righteous go. It's referred to in Scripture and in the history of theology as Abraham's side. This is a modern translation. Maybe you grew up in a church that called it Abraham's bosom. We don't, we don't call it Abraham's bosom anymore. Um, people get weirded out when you say, when you die, you'll go to Abraham's bosom. Uh, that was a very old rendering of this. Abraham's side feels a lot more comfortable to me. If you're good with it, that's what I'm going to call it. Abraham's side. You go to Abraham's side. What does this mean? It means you go to the, why Abraham? Why Abraham's side? That's the covenant of grace. It's the covenant of grace. Why is it Abraham's side? He's the head of the covenant of grace that God institutes in Genesis 12 and 15 when he calls and makes a covenant with Abraham. So the righteous go to be with the head of the covenant of grace, Abraham, while they wait. We'll get to what they're waiting for in a moment. There's a place where the righteous go. There is also a place where the unrighteous go. And that's the place that we don't want to talk about. But in three weeks, we're going to spend our whole time together talking about it. It's the place where the unrighteous go. This place is not a place of blessing. It's a place of anguish. It's a place of torment. It's a place of judgment. It's a cursed place. This idea of life after death is what we'll call the intermediate state. You might call it the in-between state. That'd be okay too. It's not a forever place. Wherever you go when you die is not where you will live forever. Wherever you go when you die is not where you will spend the rest of forever. No, 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 no. This is a transitional place, an intermediate state, a place where the dead go between the time of their death and the final resurrection at the second coming of Christ. We hear other echoes of this place. Let me give you a few other places if you were like, well, I, I want to research this a little bit more because this all sounds a little funny. I, I understand. Here's a couple other places you could go to hear this reference. Luke 23, 43. This is Jesus on the cross. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is Jesus speaking to the thief on the cross, the thief who has acknowledged him for who he is, who has acknowledged his innocence. And do you know the word that Jesus uses for paradise? Do you know what that word can be translated as? Garden? Can you think of a garden that would loom large? All throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that Jesus uses for paradise is the word that's used for Eden. It's used for the garden. Jesus is telling the thief on the cross, when he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, he's holding out in front of him, do you remember when the world was free from death? You're going to a place where that is true. You're going to a place where that is true. 2 Corinthians 5.8, excuse me, the apostle Paul says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What's Paul acknowledging here? When we die before the final resurrection, we go to a place that is with the Lord, but away from our bodies. See, this place that we go in life after death, it is conscious, it is blessed, it is with the Lord, it is paradise. When those who are righteous in Christ die, they immediately enter into what we can call present heaven. It is the heaven of now. It is the heaven of now. It is a present place that is with the Lord, that is blessed, that is conscious, but 
It is not the place where we receive our incorruptible, free from death, resurrected bodies. That's a place that comes later in life after, life after death. When the righteous die, they go to present heaven to be with the Lord. And when the unrighteous die, those who have rejected God's grace in Christ, they immediately enter into what we would call present hell. It is also a place that is conscious, but it is not blessed, it is cursed. It is not with the Lord, it is separated from God's blessed presence. It is not a paradise, it is a place of judgment. This is what the story of Scripture is saying about what happens when we die, about what life after death looks like. But I have to tell you something. Believing in life after death isn't uniquely Christian. Believing in life after death isn't a uniquely Christian thing. There's a lot of other worldviews, religions, philosophies you could adopt that have some view of life after death. It's not uniquely Christian to believe in life after death. Almost everyone who has ever lived has believed in life after death. The Egyptians believed in life after death. Our Muslim, Buddhist, and Hindu neighbors, they believe in life after death. Many witches and Wiccans believe in life after death. Greek, Norse, Roman paganism, all held views of life after death. Now, the Christian view is different than all of those views, but it's not distinct in affirming life after death. Yet there is something utterly distinct about what God's story reveals. Do you know what that is? Christians don't just believe in life after death. Christians believe in resurrection. They don't just believe in life after death. They believe in the reversal of death for everyone. That's uniquely Christian. They believe in the overturning, the full reversal of death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 13, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. The uniquely Christian part of our view is not that we believe in life after death. It's that we believe in life after life after death. Resurrection was the unique contribution of the Christian story because it was the unique act of the Christian God. That's what life after life after death is. It's not just that you will live on after death. It's that sometime after you die, Christ is coming. He is going to reverse all death. He's going to raise us up to where we will live in a life where there is no more death for good forever. And this is the hope that Paul puts in front of us in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what we looked at last week, what I read at the beginning of this sermon, which is that resurrection hope is a uniquely Christian hope because it's tied into what Christ and Christ alone has done. Life after life after death is resurrection. And it is in this moment when 1 Corinthians 15 says, when God finally puts the last enemy, death, under the dominion and in the defeat of Christ Jesus, when Christ Jesus triumphs for good forever over the last enemy, death, it is at that moment that we experience what is called the final resurrection. It will be in that moment at the end of the world when present heaven and present hell will be closed, they'll be shuttered, they will literally give up their dead. 
There will be a judgment and a separation of the righteous from the unrighteous. And those in Christ Jesus will enter into future heaven with God forever. Now, when we think about this, when does that happen? I want that. I don't just want to go live in some disembodied place. I don't want to just be some soul. I don't want just some kind of boring forever. Because the forever that God has for us in life after life after death is anything but boring. It's going to be filled with exploration and cultivation and making and moving and shaking and worshiping and feasting and giving thanks. It's going to be a place of full life. C.S. Lewis said, it is the serious business of heaven, joy. Joy is the serious business of heaven. That's what we'll give our days and our time to. So you go, when does that happen? What happens at the second coming of Christ Jesus The second coming of Christ is the inauguration of future heaven, a forever heaven of where the righteous will live with God forever. And this resurrection, it leads to the destruction of death. It leads to the glorification of the righteous. It leads to the restoration and redemption of the whole world. In Colossians 1, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, you heard him called the first fruits of the resurrection. What does this mean? It means that for those in Christ, what has happened to Jesus will happen to us. We will conquer the grave. We will be spit out of the mouth of death. We will be raised up and we will live in incorruptible bodies, free from disease, free from sin, free from shame. This resurrection isn't reincarnation, nor is it a forever disembodied life. It isn't the in-between of the intermediate state of present heaven and present hell. It is something altogether different. It is something world-breaking, earth-shattering. It changes the whole way we view every moment between now and then. N.T. Wright, a scholar of the resurrection, he says this, resurrection was by definition not the existence into which someone might or might not go immediately upon death. It was not a disembodied heavenly life. It was a further stage out beyond all of that. It was not a redescription or redefinition of death. It was death's reversal. Isn't that what we long for? Not just life after death, but the reversal of death. Like Tolkien said, don't we long for a day when God makes all the sad things come untrue? All the sufferings are redeemed and renewed and restored, made right. All the broken things are mended and made whole. Resurrection is the reversal of death. Many of us grow up thinking of heaven as a place far away from earth, where we go when we die. And that's true for a moment, but it's not forever. It's not forever. The heaven we hold in our imagination is a real place, but it's not our forever home. One day, the present heaven, what's happening right now in heaven, one day that present heaven, it will close And Christ will bring the new heavens in his second coming, the place he has prepared for us to live in the presence of God forever. And this is the beginning of the Christian hope. The beginning of the Christian hope is that when the righteous in Christ die, they are immediately brought into the presence of God, where they will live in that presence forever. That's the beginning of the Christian hope. That's the hope that God holds out for those of us who ask the question, what happens when we die? Well, if you have received 
The gospel in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, you have placed your trust, your loyalty, your allegiance into Jesus. When you die, you go to be with the Lord. And that is good news because that is a blessed place. That's the beginning of the Christian hope. But it's not the end of the Christian hope. It's not the end. It's not where the story is done. Our hope goes deeper. Our hope goes to a day when heaven will descend. I don't mean metaphorically. I mean literally heaven will descend onto earth. There will be a heavenly city established. And this creation that you and I long to see restored and renewed, our broken and shattered bodies that we long to see made whole, hospital wards that we long to see vacant forever, all of that will come because Christ is bringing it here. Not to some far off place, not to some alternate dimension. He is bringing the heaven of forever to the place where you live now. And he's going to radically reshape it. He's going to radically change it. Everything you've known that's good here will be better there. And everything that you know that's been bad and broken here will be gone forever there. The earth is remade. And we are invited to live in this blessed presence of God forever, embodied, in bodies. Not, not just floating souls embodied, beloved. No question of our identity. Free from sin, free from shame, free from suffering, free from death, free in God's good world, in his presence forever. That's the hope of heaven. Not just the hope of tomorrow's heaven, but the hope of forever heaven. The hope of the heaven that God is bringing to us. I want to give you just a foretaste of that day. I want to whet your appetite as we think about the rest of the sermons in this series, but more than that, as we think about life forever. Revelation 21, verses one through five. This is how we'll close. Let me read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the, heaven, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the day that is coming for God's righteous people. This is the day that is coming for you and I as we look towards the hope of the heaven. And my prayer in this sermon series is that we will begin to become a people who dream more about the heaven that God is bringing than the heaven that we think we can create here and now. That we will become a people whose hunger and desire goes deeper than any earthly thing could satisfy. That we will become a people who are so heavenly minded that we can look at the evil, the injustice, the despair of every moment between now and then. And we can say, that time is ending. God, give us a thimble more of it today. Because we know oceans are coming tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your grace and mercy in Christ. We ask that you would drive the hope of heaven deep into our hearts. I know how often it is easy for me to seek out establishing my own little slice of heaven here and that my world can be oriented around trying to cultivate here what you are going to give freely there. 
And I ask you, God, that we would not be like the people at the Tower of Babel, trying to construct a ladder to the heavens, but you would remind us that you are bringing heaven here. And that day is coming as sure as the resurrection has happened, so will our resurrection happen. We pray all these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.